Well, I love the banners over here on the side of the uh, platform, the, the growth uh, of the vine up there. That should be a good uh, encouragement to you to remember that you're growing. By, by the way, how does your garden grow? Is it coming along? Are the roots growing deeper with you? Are you getting better at this business of developing the fruit of the Spirit in your life? You know, if you've got a garden area that is unlimited in space, you don't have to worry about what you plant. I mean, you can plant anything and everything. You can have rows upon rows of sweet corn for roasting ears and corn on the cob, and you can have dozens of hills of potatoes for new potatoes, and old potatoes as the season wears on. You can have rows of bunches of green beans. I mean, you can have anything in a garden that you want. But if you don't have much space, you have to be choosier about what you plant in the garden. Now, uh, Elsie and I don't have a lot of space in our backyard. We've got a lot of shade. And so we, a few years ago, decided we were going to buy, invest in some of these uh, earth boxes. You know, they're, they're about this big, about that wide, about that tall. You know, and they have a water reservoir in the bottom. And, and you know, you can't plant corn. In it. You can get maybe two corn stalks in it. That wouldn't provide enough roast in there. So you have to be pretty selective about the things that will grow well. But we've, we've narrowed our garden down to three things that really grow well. We've got tomatoes and cucumbers and peppers that grow well in these, in these garden boxes and enjoy those. When we first got them, I planted zucchini. I thought any idiot could grow zucchini, but evidently not. I, uh, <laughs> here's an idiot that couldn't get the zucchini to grow, so we gave up on that idea, but we narrowed it down to, to three, and so we enjoy what happens in our little garden boxes every year. God doesn't have a limitation of space, but God has limited down the garden to just one item. We've got three. God has one, and it's simply called the fruit of the Spirit. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the, the fact that it is singular, it is the fruit of the Spirit, and, and yet people get really confused about that. I mean, there, there's something ab, ab, about that that people just don't get. They say, no, there's nine fruits of the Spirit. No, there's just one. Paul is just using descriptive terms so we understand what the fruit is. Now, you, you, we ought to be able to get that. It'd be like, pretend for just a moment you'd never seen or tasted a strawberry. If, if I said, well, a strawberry's red, would that help you? No. You wouldn't know if it tasted like an apple or a habanero pepper. But if I want to give you some kind of an idea and anticipation, I would describe it like this. It's a wonderfully sweet fruit. It has a distinctly pleasant aroma. It is somewhat triangular in shape. It's covered with tiny edible seeds. It has a juicy texture. It's perfect on homemade ice cream, and it's a great basis for making jam for your toast in the morning. Now, you wouldn't tell me, oh, you just named off seven different fruits. You know well, good and well that I was just describing one fruit. I just used seven different expressions to do so. Now, you still wouldn't know what a strawberry tastes like, but you would at least be able to recognize it, and you would at least be anticipating this is going to be good stuff when I get it. Now, that's what Paul is doing in Galatians chapter 5. He is describing the fruit of the Spirit in such a way as to make it recognizable and desirable to us. And the first descriptive term that he chooses is love. Now, I know what some of you guys are thinking. Ah, <laughs> oh, come on, Tom, this is Father's Day. Could you have picked something a little less gushy for Father's Day than love? I mean, Mother's Day, yeah, I can get that, but not for Father's Day. I understand, guys. I get it. I am a dad, too. I like cars, pickup trucks, planes, pocket knives, and movies filled with adventure and intrigue. But if you'll stick with me, I think you'll discover that this may be the best topic for Father's Day. That real, genuine, relevant love like this is the best thing 
for us men. Now, Paul doesn't suggest these descriptive terms are prioritized in order of importance. He just lists them. But I would suggest to you that the very first one is the most important term. Because love seems to be the basis for all the rest. After all, love is the heartbeat of the greatest commandment. When Jesus was asked, what's the most important thing I can do? He responded in Mark 12 like this. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And love is the virtue that consolidates all other virtues. Colossians 3.14, Paul writes this, And over all of these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. It's like love is the glue. Love is the single most distinguishing characteristic of the Christian life. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, this is what we read. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. There is no other characteristic that distinguishes like, like God's love. And love is essential in order to connect with God. 1 John chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, just a little bit later in that same chapter, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. You want to live in God, you've got to live in love. See what I mean? There is just nothing quite like the power of love. And if we don't get this one, the rest of them really don't matter anyway. And guys, we don't need to shy away from this as, as if, well, this is not a very manly topic. Besides, the greatest father of all is best described with this word. But what does it mean when it says God is love? What kind of a love are we talking about? Our problem in understanding that goes to our language. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the English language, but there's the problem. I just loved, uh, used a word to describe my appreciation for the English language that I also used to describe how I feel about my wife, my kids, and my God. And I can complicate the thing further by saying something like this, I love a thick, juicy steak, or I love a good Jack Reacher novel, or I love building something with my hands. And, and you're th thinking, how can one word be used in every one of those contexts? It just, it just gets really confusing, doesn't it? But thankfully, in the language of the New Testament, the Greek is so specific that there's no question as to what is being meant. It is the word agape. It's not a romantic kind of love, guys, where you're suddenly going to find yourself craving a good chick flick and you go off looking for a box of tissues to help you get through it. But it's the kind of love that might make you sacrificial enough to sit down with your wife and watch a chick flick because you know that's important to her. It's not a family kind of love that's going to transform you into a house husband complete with a duster and an apron, although it's the kind of love that might just make you willing enough to help out around the homestead because that's what a real man does to help his family. And it's not even that friendship kind of a love, that band of brothers kind of love. 
although it is the kind of love that might just make you the best friend you could ever be. This love, this word agape, is God at, its, at his purest. Agape flows from the intellect, not the emotions. Agape is proactive, not reactive. Agape responds with reason, not with feeling. Agape commits itself to the well-being of the person who is its object. Let me say that one again. Agape commits itself to the well-being of the person who is its object. In other words, it's seeking the very best for someone else. That's agape. Agape never says, I will love you if... That's a conditional statement. It's self-centered kind of love. Agape never says, I love you because... That's a partial, inadequate kind of love. Agape always says, I will love you in spite of, because that's an unconditional, unselfish, totally adequate kind of love. Every other loving feeling is secondary to this one. Agape is the umbrella under which every other loving expression becomes real and genuine. For instance, physical romance alone may become merely an expression of passion without commitment. But under the umbrella of agape, sexual abuse or unfaithfulness is never a consideration. It's unthinkable. Family interaction alone can create tense moments in the household or with extended family where we harbor grudges and resentments because my brother did this or my sister did that. But under the umbrella of agape, families find a way to forgive and restore those all-important relationships. Friendship alone can bring painful rejection at times, but under the umbrella of agape, true friends will respond with acceptance and loyalty. Roger and I were talking this week about this kind of love, and he's not sure where he first heard it, but he says the idea has stuck with him through the years. It goes something like this. I always thought agape was love for the unlovely until I realized that agape doesn't even notice unlovely. We could spend literally hours exploring the depths of this kind of love, but it's Father's Day, and so I'm just going to take a look at a couple things because that's all we men can handle. It's about two things in a sermon, all right? So guys and ladies, if you can remember this, here's, here's what I want you to take home today about this kind of love. Number one, love is a choice. We are so enamored in our culture with the idea of falling irresistibly in love with somebody that the thought of love being a choice is just kind of foreign to us. But how else do we explain the love of God for us? Do we really believe, folks, that, that the perfect God of the universe could not resist loving us because we're all as adorable as a box of brand new puppies or something? God didn't love us because we're irresistible. God loves us because that's who he is. That's his nature. And his love is irresistible. He didn't fall for any of us, but his love is irresistible. Sometimes when we imitate that kind of love, it comes easy. Sometimes the loving choice is an easy choice. Friday, we got a, we got a call in the church office about folks needing food on Saturday. These are the folks who have been giving of their time so freely and generously and diligently to help search for clues about our missing IU co-ed Lauren Spear. The word went out and 
food began to come in, I think, uh, on Saturday when it was taken over to uh, McNutt. There were a couple cars, a couple vans. Lots of food went, and, uh, and, and the people who participated did so joyfully. You see, thousands of prayers have been offered. Hundreds of uh, hours uh, have been spent scouring the area for some clue. Compassion compels us to reach out. That, that, that's an easy choice. I got an email last evening from John Hill, one of the men in our church, who has been going every day to help with the search. And he said, on the other days, we would come back on breaks, and he said, we basically had bread and water. He said, there just was not much there to eat. And he said, after Saturday, he said, we went from famine to feast. He said, you can't imagine what the banquet was that, you, that Sherwood Oaks put on. And there were other churches that were involved as well as the word got out, and suddenly from nothing to lots. And, 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 the, and the response is, what more can we do? Because every one of us wants to do something to help in those kinds of things. That's when love's choice is easy. Paul writes earlier in Galatians chapter five, he says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, rather serve serve one another humbly in love. That kind of a choice is easy. But sometimes agape choices are not so easy. Sometimes they're almost more difficult than we can bear. You've been hurt by someone who you thought loved you as much as you loved him or her, and your wound is deep and suddenly it's not so easy committing yourself to the well-being of that person. Suddenly it's not so easy to think of what can I do that will benefit that person. Or you have coworkers whose inner office politics are cutthroat and they'll stop at nothing to get ahead, including lying about you to further their own advancement. It's not so easy committing yourself to their well-being. It's not so easy thinking about what's the best thing I can do for that person. Your best friend makes a pass at your spouse and suddenly it's not so easy committing yourself to the well-being of that person. It's not so easy thinking about that person and loving them as God has called us to love them. But it is the love that makes a genuine difference. When Jesus said, love your enemies, that's how it has to be. It, it doesn't come from the feeling, it comes from the choice, I will be committed to the well-being of that person. I like what Mother Teresa used to say. She said, if you can't do great things, do little things with great love. If you can't do them with great love, do them with a little love. If you can't do them with a little love, do them anyway. <laughs> you see, that really is agape. It's not about the feeling of love. It's doing the right thing. It's doing what is best for someone else. It is making the right choice. It is being committed to the well-being of the person that you love. Love is a choice. Here's the other thing to take home with you, guys. Love is a verb. 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. In other words, love is an action word. Agape responds with action. Now, I want you to understand this aspect of agape, and that is that 
it does its best work when it connects us together. As a matter of fact, I think the Holy Spirit does his best work in us when we are connected through this agape love. And, and, and let me tell you why. The Journal of Happiness Studies reveals that the difference between genuinely happy people and unhappy people has nothing to do with money, health, security, IQ, attractiveness, or career success. The distinguishing factor is relational connectedness. Did you catch that? Loving connections, loving relationships result in happy people. John Ortberg writes this, he said, connectedness is not the same thing as knowing many people. People may have many contacts in many networks, but they may not have any friends. It's not about how many people you know casually. It's not how many people you've connected with on LinkedIn. It's, it's about these loving relationships that matter. Now, how important is that loving connectedness? Scientist Donald Winnicott found that children who place in play in close proximity to a parent the study actually looked at mothers, but it works within either parent. Children who play in close proximity to where the parent is physically are more creative than children who play at a distance from their parent. There's something about this circle of connectedness that enables a child to show more energy, laugh more, and take more risks. It's not that the mother is doing something because she is close by or the father is helping because he's close by. It all has to do with the connectedness of the proximity. When a child feels loved, protected, and cared for, he feels stronger, bolder, and more creative. When you are loved in this way, when you have a circle of connectedness, when you're loved like that, it, it, it infuses life in you. It expands your horizon. It makes you stronger. It makes you more creative. It makes you, youer. <laughs> you, you just, it expands who you are. It is a wonderful trait that God knew that when we connect in family and in spiritual family, that this sense of loving somebody as God loves us helps bring us life. Now, husbands and wives, that's why this genuine kind of love is so vital in a marriage. When you love each other like this, not I love you if, or I love you because, but when I love you in spite of when I love you because it's the choice that I make, it is a, lo it is a love that infuses life into us. It is a connectedness that you cannot, you, you just cannot minimize. Now, guys, we would do a better job of expressing that kind of love. Someone much wiser than I said, there are three laws of real estate, location, location, location. There are also three laws of relationship, observation, observation, observation. People who infuse us with life are those who notice what's going on in our lives. We men don't tend to be very good with that. Guys, you can't just be present in body when you're at home. For you to really connect with your family, to really connect with your wife, you've got to be present physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually because your family needs all of you. Your wife needs to know that you love her. And that demands more in action than it does in words. When you're a disconnected dad, when you're a disconnected husband, and you want to reconnect again, your motives will be misunderstood. 
Now, if you're always connected, they'll get to know that. But when you disconnect and then you want to reconnect and then you disconnect, whenever you try to reconnect, your motives will always be misunderstood or questioned. It's kind of like the, the younger husband who had, oh, he'd been so busy at work and he'd allowed that to happen. And his wife, they were, they were new parents, and so his wife was staying at home with the baby and he knew he had neglected her. And so he was feeling guilty. So one day he decided he was just going to go home early in the afternoon, surprise her, and he stopped by the floral shop and he picked up a, a bouquet of flowers and he picked up a box of candy. And he didn't even walk into the house. He went to the front door. He thought, I'll, I'll surprise her big time. And went to the front door, rang the doorbell, and she came to the door and opened it up. And there he stands with flowers in one hand, candy in the other hand, and he begins to sing a love ballad to her. And she just loses it, absolutely loses it, and not in a good way. She's just sobbing from deep down inside. <laughs> and she says, this has been the worst day of my life. She says, the baby has fussed continually. She said, we ran out of diapers. The microwave exploded, and now you've come home drunk. <laughs> when you're out of the loop, guys, and you try to come back into the loop... You'll always be misunderstood. <laughs> Pay attention to what's going on at home. Observe, observe, observe. Focus on her. Be face-to-face -face with her. Show her that you are utterly committed to her and that you treasure her above all else. Be visible with your love in these ways and not just when you want something. By loving her that way, you infuse life into her. Ladies, we men need your respect. In a survey of men, 74%, that's three-fourths of the men that were surveyed, said they would rather be alone and unloved rather than be made to feel inadequate and be disrespected by the one they love. Nothing destroys a man quicker than the conclusion that he has lost your respect. And remember this. We men are not always the best with our words. I know you get enamored with Hollywood's leading hunks, but will you remember they have script writers? <laughs> we husbands don't have anybody writing a script for us. Our best expressions of love are the things that we do, that we build, that we provide with our hands. Pay attention, observe, observe, observe. What we create is our way of saying, I love you. You want your husband to live a long time? Connect with him through respect. It's amazing how sometimes just that circle of connectedness and love can get us through when other things won't. You can see the power of connection in the unlikely life of Sir Winston Churchill. <laughs> Churchill had a wonderful marriage. He was deeply connected to his family, his friends, his nation, and his work. But his health habits were abysmal. His diet was awful. He smoked cigars all the time, drank way too much, had weird sleeping habits, and was completely sedentary. And yet he lived to be nearly 90 years old. He was once asked, Mr. Churchill, do you ever exercise? To which he replied, the only exercise I get is serving as a pallbearer for my friends who died while they were exercising. <laughs> now, I'm not advocating, folks, that, that, that we participate in poor health habits. That's not what I'm trying to say at all. I'm just trying to say that sometimes that connectedness with other people, family, friends, countrymen, can go a long way in 
overcoming other things in our life. It is that kind of love that infuses life. Really, connecting at any level is important. Connecting here is important. What we do in this room is important on a, on a weekly basis, but this is not the be-all and do-all, okay? Uh, I mean, if you really want to get connected with people, it's not going to happen in this room. It's going to happen in some other smaller setting, like a Sunday school class on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night elective class or a, a small group that meets at home with a handful of people. Oh, those are, those are great opportunities. A missions trip, a service team, all these ways. That's where you connect best. As a matter of fact, Robert Putnam made a powerful observation when he noted, as a rough rule of thumb, if you belong to no groups and you decide to join a group, you can cut your risk of dying over the next year in half. Do you understand what he's saying? So if you're not involved with any group and you join a group, you've just given yourself a 50% better chance of surviving the next year than you did before you were in the group. That is incredible. It's because of that circle of connectedness. So I've got a new slogan for our smaller groups here at church. Here it is. Join or die. And it's worth remembering, because if you're not involved in some kind of a smaller group, you're putting your own life at risk, because that kind of love, that kind of connectedness infuses life. And that kind of love, that, that love that's a verb, that love that's an action word, its actions are best seen in its obedience. Love obeys. John 15 Verses 9 through 10, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Now listen, if you, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. John 14, 15 says it just so simply. If you love me, keep my commands. Every parent knows that the best expression of love from their child is obedience. When you tell your child, this is the best thing to do, this is what I want you to do, and the child embraces those words and follows through with those words, there is a reward in a parent's life that it's hard to describe. But when your child disses you, when they dismiss what you have to say, when they thumb their nose at you, and are completely disobedient, there is a pain in a, in a parent's heart that goes deep because you're looking out for their best good. You are committed to their complete well-being as a parent, and you know that when they don't obey, it's a sign of disrespect and lack of love. The same thing is true of our Heavenly Father who said, if you love me, you will do what I ask. Sometimes I have people say, how do I love God more? How do I know that I'm loving God more? Well, there's the answer. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands. The, the more you obey him, the more you do what God wants you to do, the more you are expressing your love for him. It's just as simple as that. This is not hard to understand. It's just hard to practice. If you love him, do what he asks. For decades, the philosophy of, of dog obedience schools was that you trained a dog by punishing the dog when it did wrong things. You either beat it or you yelled at it or something until it became fearful of the master and understood the commands. In recent 
Years understand that some philosophies have changed, and that is that you minimize the punishment and you really enhance the rewards. And so when the dog does something right, you just pile on the rewards because they've learned that a dog's real deep desire is to be pleasing to its master, to make the master happy because then the dog is happy. I look at that and I think we often respond the same way. You know, both trainings work. Both produce well-trained dogs, but it produces two different kinds of dogs. One produces a dog that's terrified to do the wrong thing. The other, a dog that is eager to do the right thing. Maybe that's why God has already given us the rewards. He's given us the forgiveness of our sins. He's promised us life everlasting. He's given us abundant life right here and now. Because if he's given us the rewards, then he knows that we will be driven to do the right thing to please our Father. A wealthy businessman known for his unethical business practices told Mark Twain that before he died, he wanted to visit the Holy Land, climb Mount Sinai where Moses received the law and read out loud the Ten Commandments to which Mark Twain replied, I have a better idea. Why don't you stay in Boston and keep them? That's the best thing we can do to show God we love him is right where we live. Act out, live out love out his commands because that's the best way we can say father i love you how's your garden growing how you doing love is the root system of this fruit and to start growing you must first know the gardener himself is jesus christ your savior if not while we stand and sing you come